Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Mantato, your host. Man, it's been a while since I did a podcast. I've had a lot of shit going on, you know. I, uh, as I'm sure everyone on the website already knows, and if you're a new listener, my wife of 30 years passed away. Oh, before summertime, so I've just kind of been processing that and, you know, trying to take care of our daughters as best I can. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's been a, it's been a time. So, uh, just crawling into just writing pretty much obsessive compulsively every day, but I'm getting some really good stuff. I've been working on this, um, this uh, speculative fiction piece, as many of you know, because you've already read the free preview um, on the Colorado Switchblade, and um, kind of really thinking about what does the world look like that my daughters are going to inherit with all of the wonderful things that we've we've uh, we have in store for them, whether that be just crazy climate change crazy division politics that that just are getting more and more extreme every day and and how do they navigate that how do they find human connection again and and find joy in a shattered broken world um set in the backdrop of uh, a reignited second civil war it's kind of a little cyberpunk meets western and, uh, you know, it's crazy, like Salon's already mentioned it, um, the Washingtonians mentioned it, it's just, yeah, it's crazy, but, you know, that's the world we live in, so I don't, I don't expect it not to be crazy, then more crazy in 30 years, so, um, but we had some things going on this week, it's like, you know what, I need to, I need to get back in the saddle, I need to get back in front of the microphone and just talk about a few things, so, in today's episode, we are going to be, I have a conversation with Assistant Town Administrator here in Estes Park, Colorado, Jason Damweber, and uh, we're going to be talking about the failed, well, it's not quite failed, but it's certainly not moving forward at this point, um, the the hurdles, I don't know, we'll, we'll, I mean, it still remains to be seen, but the, the fish hatchery um, housing project, workforce housing and just where that is, why it fell apart, because, you know, that was often touted as one of the big solutions to our housing crisis we're experiencing here in Estes. And um, unfortunately, they had to part ways with the developers and, and it just there was a very, you know, they put out these press releases, but they don't really talk about what really happened. So I decided I was just going to go down to town hall and talk with Jason because he's, he's usually the doors open and uh, he's been on the show several times, I believe a couple anyway, and um, hear from them what's really going on in, in language we can easily understand. Um, I also, after that, there was a, something that came across, I get, I get all these press releases for media folks um, throughout northern Colorado, and that includes uh, the Larimer County Sheriff's Department. And there was uh, a press release that came over about a an officer getting cleared, and they had released the body cam footage of... Man, I want to say it's a kid. It's not a kid. It's a, a young adult who was pulled over in February of last year. No, actually, it was this year. February, I believe, this year. Might have been last year. Um, and... Uh, he was helping his girlfriend move, which is right off I-25, and um, like had a cat in the car, and he made some poor decisions. He gave the uh, the deputy the wrong name, didn't present a license, and he bolted when he heard he was getting arrested, and unfortunately he bolted right into traffic of I-25, but then the deputy decided to tase him in the literally in the lane of traffic and it, it's a very disturbing video to watch because he goes down and not a second later a car comes at it man it's got to be 70 80 miles an hour and just straight on hits him but this kid 
doesn't have a chance now, you know, and, and the, the narrative that the sheriff's department is it's fentanyl because he had some, apparently he had some fentanyl in his system and some methamphetamine, but you know, he'll never get a chance to go and get help. He'll never have a chance to get his life together. Um, because a lot of us fuck up when we're younger and we need that time to figure our shit out. We need that time to to get our shit together. And um, so he'll never get that. And, you know, it really didn't get much player coverage in the mainstream media. So I wanted to, I'm going to try to include, I don't know if I'll be able to do this or not. I'm going to try to include, because on Substack, you, you can either have it be a podcast or a video. I'm not sure if you can like have a podcast episode that has a video. If not, I'll put it on its own post um, with a link in the show notes so that you can take the time to watch it yourself. I'll also put a link. I'm not going to put all the all the talking that the sheriff does about the evils of drugs and this, that, and the other. I don't think this has anything to do with drugs. The kid seemed like he was pretty, you know, he wasn't, he was pretty coherent and, and certainly could run. Um, you know, I think that's just, it, it's easy to demonize um, a young person by saying, oh, well, they, they're a junkie, they're an addict. And, uh, you know, does it really matter that we killed them? Because fentanyl is evil. You know what? Fentanyl is a problem. Uh, meth's certainly been a problem for decades. Um, you know what? We, we need to help people. We need to not tase them in the middle of I-25 at night in February. Um, and then, you know, this officer, this deputy, Scott Free, I hope there's some civil action that happens. I hope the family is, is taking... Uh, some civil action, but I, I just thought that people needed to know what went down. So I'm going to include the body cam footage from the time of the stop to the bolting, which is like maybe five minutes. Um, but that way you can decide for yourself. And I'll put a link into, you know, the the propaganda that the sheriff's putting out as far as, you know, his officer did just a stellar job. And we know this. I mean, the Fort Collins Police Department, you know, the ones who, who investigated it and the, the DA, of course, rubber stamped it. Um, yeah, and sure, he he definitely fucked up. The kid fucked up, but he's dead now. And I have to question the judgment of a deputy who's going to tase someone in the middle of oncoming traffic on the largest highway in Colorado. Like, why is that not being called out? And I think I think, you know, at least in this episode I need to call it out a little bit. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um and uh, then the other piece I wanted to talk about today was there was another round of hearings, congressional hearings, on the UFO topic. And, man, I've said it before. I'm going to put a link into – I wrote an article about my own personal disclosure and just the where disclosure was. But, I mean, it's it's happening, folks. We are having disclosure right now. And if you're not paying attention, you may not be seeing it. But they're talking about biologics that have been recovered with crash – sites, recovered technology, um, interdimensionality. These are all things that were, these are all things that were talked about in this congressional hearing. And if you look at the witness list, it's three guys that have literally um, golden credentials. So uh, I'm also going to put a link in to the full C-SPAN hearing. It's, uh, it's pushing two hours, but like, if this is a topic that really gets you grabs your attention like you should take the time to watch the c-span footage and i'll put a link into that as well because it's really interesting stuff it just opens up like we are not alone in this universe you know there, there are things going on and man i mean it kind of makes sense i mean if <laughs> if we had a, a planet with a, a species of of uh you know smart a smart species that was just coming out of the industrial revolution and literally destroying their planet in front of the, the galaxy's eyes. Like, it makes sense that they're here kind of, I don't know, maybe it's some sort of space anthropology, you know, checking out what we're, how we're, how we're destroying ourselves. But, um, yeah, anyway, I thought that would be a, a very interesting topic. So wanted to kind of recap that a little bit. But for now, we're going to just, let's just jump into uh, my interview with the town administrator, assistant town administrator, 
Jason Damweber um, here in Estes Park, Colorado, talking about workforce housing, affordable housing, why the bottom fell out of the fish hatchery project, and um, where, we, where we go from there here, because there are some silver linings to this, um, you know, uh, that hopefully in the city's push, according to, to Jason, you know, the city's pushes for, for, you know, lower rents. I mean, they were talking about the the way the project was sitting, if you had two kids and you you were had a partner, so four of you in a two bedroom apartment, you'd be looking at like twenty one hundred bucks a month. So that's not all that affordable. That's not really going to help the people that are, you know, working as as bartenders and hostesses and and cooks um, that are currently sleeping in their cars, which is okay enough in the summer, but in we have people who sleep in their cars to to be workforce housing in the winter time. I've interviewed them in the wintertime. And um, so, uh, yeah, super critical issue for us here in the Estes Valley. And uh, so let's just jump right into that right now. Jason is the um, assistant town administrator here in Estes. And we're going to talk a little bit about affordable housing in Estes. So... We, we had this project going, the Fish Hatchery Affordable Housing Project, and that just fell apart. So I'm just wondering, I know that we put out the press releases, but it's fairly vague. Um, so what happened? I mean, there are, there are people living in their cars right now um, that are trying to become a part of our community, that are a part of our community already, um, that, you know, I know... I know many people that were relying on that project. So what happened? How come, and, and you know, where's the future of it? But let's just start with what happened. So a couple of different things. Uh, the Fish Hatchery project was never an affordable housing project. It's uh, a workforce housing project. And the difference there is that um, what we've discussed to date is the requirement that that, uh, that, that, that development house people who work in our local workforce a minimum of 30 hours a week year-round. Right. Um, there weren't income restrictions as uh, the project was envisioned. So there's attainable housing and workforce housing. Attainable housing is um, generally uh, referring to uh, housing that's provided for people with lower income. So I want to make that distinction because with the fish hatchery project, that was going to be, um, that was going to have rents between 80 and 120% AMI. Um, there's a great need AMI there. being? Uh, area median income. Okay. Um, uh, essentially the amount of money that a household makes. Um, and, uh, and to your point, our housing needs assessment strategic plan evinced a great need for housing for all income levels, uh, but especially uh, those making below 60% um, AMI. Uh, there was a great need for what we were looking at also, 80% and above. Um, but several things changed since we really started this process in earnest about two and a half years ago when we put out the RFP. Um, one of those things was uh, the, the fact that there are projects coming out of the ground that will meet some of that need for the higher AMI levels. Uh, we've got the wildfire project over off of Dry Gulch um, and the prospector that's coming out of the ground um, off of Seven. And we think that those projects will put a big dent in the need for 80 to 120% AMI. Um, even so what are those projects for those that don't know? So Wildfire is a workforce housing development. Um, I believe it's a mixture of, um, well, actually, you know what? I, I, so there are for sale. I'm not sure what the proportion of for sale versus rental um, is over there. Something to look into. However, with, uh, with respect to the prospector, I think that's going to be about 94 uh, apartment units, all for rent and all for the workforce here. Um, I don't recall exactly what the cap on those rents will be. I think they can go up to 150% AMI, uh, so a little higher than what was being envisioned at the fish hatchery. Um, but again, that's enough units that it will put um, a, a significant dent in uh, addressing the need at those AMI levels. Now we need to um, you know, pivot and focus on where we see that uh, the, the other great 
need that is not currently being met in the community. Um, and that being the lower a the, the lower, lower income. yeah housing yeah, for which for is, lower income. I gotta folks. be honest with you. Most of the people I know that are you know in that crisis right now, they're working as bartenders, they're working as hostesses. You know, they're working these jobs that they're not making, you know, they're lucky if they're making 19 bucks an hour, uh, but generally they're tipped, so it's a lot less. And, you know, unfortunately, we just, you know, how, what's the time frame on when some of those projects, say the, the prospect, was it Prospector? Prospector, yeah. Um, when, when will those be available? I'm not sure uh, when the exact date of... Uh of the availability of those is if you drive by there you can see that they're more you know they're coming out of the ground now they've erected the walls um mm-hmm. for a couple of the the buildings um it's uh needless to say it's it's always hard to uh anticipate when something when construction will be done around here because it's so uh, dependent upon weather right um that's one of the reasons why we allow um, depending on the circumstances, night work or weekend work to occur because our construction window is so short. Um, I expect that those will, if I had to guess, I'd say those will probably be opening up sometime um, in 2024. Um, sooner the better because, as, yeah. as, as you, you uh, mentioned, the need is absolutely there. Um, but with re- respect to the fish hatchery project, I want to explain a couple of other major factors, major major things that have changed that led us to um, pivot from what we were initially envisioning. Um, we have been working, we've been meeting regularly, negotiating with our development partners, America West and Consolidated Housing Solutions, to try to find uh, a mutually agreeable, what we refer to as a rent table, that outlines the number of units, um, how many bedrooms are in each unit, how many of each of those there are, and what the rent will be. Right. Something that's palatable to us, knowing that we have uh, a need for both workforce housing, but also affordability as an issue. Um, we came to preliminary agreement on a rent table uh, a while ago now, probably about a year ago. And, and what did that span? I mean, what were we looking at as far as rents go? Uh, it, between, well, like I said before, between 80 and 120% AMI. With AMI, I mean, that's, that's some jargon that a lot of people are not going to get. Um, what Break that down into real-life scenarios. You know, what, what does that mean on, for, for you, know, you and me if we needed to go out and get an apartment for our family? What would we be paying? So to, to put that uh, into perspective, the, the new um, AMI figures for Larimer County actually just came out um, through uh, the state's um, CHAFA as the organization. Uh, for a household of four people, at 100% AMI, that means the income for that household is about $113,000 a year. Um, oftentimes, a four-person household is two. I've never made 113000 two, uh, <laughs> two, uh, two people with an income and right. two, two children. So, yeah. Yeah, so 113%, or I'm sorry, $113,000 is 100% AMI. And again, these apartments would have been between 80 and 120%. Um, and to put that into perspective for a rent, um, a two-bedroom apartment at the 100% AMI level um, would be about $2,500 a month. Wow. Um, and that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's doubling up the kids with bunk beds and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, so o- over the last year, year and a half, uh, especially, we've seen dramatically increasing interest rates. We've seen the cost of construction increase, depending on who you ask, between forty and eighty percent. Um, and you know th- these these ch- economic changes, financial changes, are occurring in the midst of our negotiations. Right. So it feels like we agree on something, and then the math, the pro forma, has to change um, because cost money to build things yeah. um, and eventually we got to a point where how um, much were the overruns looking at I mean how much more was it looking than what was projected well it, that that's hard to say because the the you know our development partner and their the equity partner that they were working with were the ones developing their pro forma to see you know what would work for them and they would propose the the new rent table basically um, in the end, when we decided that it was the right time to, to 
step away from the negotiations was the rent table was pretty much the same as it was a year, a year and a half ago, but um, the pro forma included a $2 million contribution from the town through ARPA dollars that the county, um, the county allotted to us, granted to us, uh, to buy down rents for this project, um, as well as some um, fee reductions from the housing authority. The housing authority would be a partner in this project, uh, would have been, and, and You're talking be. about the Estes Park Housing Authority? The Estes Park Housing Authority. Uh, they do the, the uh, annual eligibility verification. Mm -hmm. So when somebody applies to, to uh, live in one of these apartments, they're the ones who confirm whether or not they are actually part of the workforce. Right. Um, yeah, and they, they have to do my that. My daughter on, went through that with them. Exactly, so. and and uh, and they have to do that on an annual basis. So they charge some fees uh, in order to do that. And when you've got 190 apartment units, that gets up there. Um, and they'd agreed to um, keep kind of the rent table where it was to lower what they were originally proposing they would charge. And so while the rent table stayed about the same as it was a year, year and a half ago, it included significant contributions from both the town slash county, because these are ARPA dollars from the county, um, and the housing authority. Um, and kind of the combination of the increased costs for uh, building, uh, for financing the project, um, the fact that we would have to be putting more skin in the game mm. than 22 acres of town-owned property, community-owned property, um, and the fact that the, the ballot measure in November passed is huge. That gives us an ongoing revenue source that right. was not even in the picture. Back when um, you were originally drawn. Exactly. I mean, right. it, it, it got on our radar only, you know, about a year ago, um, right. a little bit over a year ago when the, the there was legislation at the state level that would have enabled our local marketing district to do something like that. Have those funds started coming in yet? They have started to come in. You know um, what that's at about now? Uh, through May, um, it's a little bit over a million dollars. And we budgeted for about $5.3 million in the 6E revenues. And by way of reminder, those funds can only be used to address workforce housing and child care. Okay. Um, and uh, just the town board meeting before last, um, uh, our, the, the town board um, entered into a new memorandum of understanding with the housing authority that enables the town essentially to pass through those funds for workforce housing to the housing authority. The housing authority exists to address those issues. Um, and while and they're the town, a part of the town infrastructure, right? I mean, they're kind of a district. Well, they're they're a separate entity, but the town board appoints their board members. Right. So they have their own board um, and you know their own uh, their own Bylaws financial systems. Yep. Um, and they have to do their own audit and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but in many ways, they are a creature of the town while they're not you know, actually a town department because of um, our town board's uh, authority to appoint their town. So really the sticking point when it comes to this issue was that the rent point was too high for what we feel felt comfortable with. And I mean, I understand construction costs increasing and, you know, inflation, those are all things out of our control. But, you know, I can tell you, I went to the grocery store last week and bought a box of coffee, a creamer, big one, it's a big one, and sweet tea, and it was $40. So, you know, the grocery costs are getting bad. And unfortunately, you know, we're seeing, I'm working on a story now where because there is no affordable housing, we have some unscrupulous business owners in town that are bringing in J-1 visa workers from all over the world um, under what I would say is false pretenses. You know, they're saying one thing and the reality when they get here is another. There are people that are bunking right now in this town, five to seven people in houses with black mold issues. I mean, they're just being taken advantage of. And this is something we know has gone on for years. But, you know, unfortunately, the the housing crisis we're in just exasperates those types of issues when they happen. Um, you know, so I, I certainly commend that, like, you guys are looking at the price point of what rent's really going to be, um, you know, but yeah, if, when are we going to see? So to, to, your, to your point, if I had to pick one thing um, that led to the pivot, 
I, yes, I think it is affordability. Yeah. Um, you know, and which it, I can get behind. Like having a bunch of new apartments that aren't going to help the people that are working at the schools or you know helping run the small businesses in town that we rely on for our tax base um you know what's that what good does that do well and and you know we 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 have one shot at this and we need to maximize the impact um of this property um and pivoting and allowing the town in partnership with the housing authority to um, to to really be in control of this project right. gives us the flexibility to build what we think we need. You know, setting aside the design components, which are important, and right. you know, when and we, we get only there, have so much land we can develop. Exactly, exactly. But um, but it'll allow us to determine what the appropriate levels of uh, rent levels are, um, the appropriate mix of of you know, the, the number of units and the bedrooms within those units. And also, um, we can use that uh, part, part of that property if, if the town board chooses to, to address um, not only attainable housing issues, uh, workforce housing issues, um, as we traditionally talk about them um, 30 hours a week year round, but also some of those great seasonal needs. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of creative ways that that can be done. Uh, dorm style housing um, is one of the things that we've discussed. Um, there's, you know, this, this property abuts Rocky Mountain National Park. They have a huge need for um, housing for their workforce, especially their seasonals yep. that come in the summer. Um, and that's another thing that would have not been on the table um, if we proceeded down the path with a development partner uh, because you know the the finances wouldn't have worked out for them but but with the 6e funding and other funding sources um, you know basically everything's back on the table again so where do we go from here like where what what's the plan moving forward to address this crisis well we have lots of conversations to have with the housing authority and the community um, about what goes out at fish hatchery um, we are not stopping the project we are like i said keep saying pivoting um, we're not going to be working with the development partner that we had uh, previously identified um, who, who they actually were a good partner. Um, we just were unable to, to, to come to terms in the end. Um, so we're going to be having discussions about, uh, you know, what, what needs to go there and how that happens. So if we're talking about find a new partner developing and they've got to have the, the financial aspect of that, right? Because that's on them to a certain degree, right? Well, um, th that's one of the biggest questions is how, how we can, you know, what was what was being built out there would have cost about $60 million. Um, and, you know, it's probably reasonable to assume that whatever we build out there will cost about that much, yeah, maybe if more, more. If, things, if things keep going the way they are with the economy. Um, and so we need to figure out how we leverage 6E funds, um, uh, funds through um, the Department of Local Affairs at the state. There's lots of grant opportunities there. Um, and how we can, you know, receive rents from the people who are living there to, you know, reinvest back in the, right. the project to make it yeah. sustainable and, then we have and build the, other things. The, the, the most recent, you know, vote. So we've got funds coming in on a local level too that are already accumulating. So. Yes, and those can definitely those can be leveraged. Um, and you know, you can you can we can take out loans just like a, a person can. It, you know, it looks looks different. Um, uh, and it will be a, a lot of uh, a lot of debt payments that we uh, will be in, be responsible for for taking care of. But that's all things that still need to be figured out. Um, is is how we make this project happen. We can make it happen. I'm confident that we can. Um, and we don't know yet if the housing authority is going to serve as a developer or we put out a new RFP to find um, a new partner that's focused on lower income housing um, and that means they'd be leveraging different funding sources primarily through the federal government um, but the housing authority you know they they built a successful project over on Peakview a couple of years ago mm -hmm. i believe that's 26 units so we're talking mm -hmm. about uh, much greater magnitude um, with this project but um, but it's certainly something I believe that they're capable of we still you know this is just so fresh we still have to have conversations about 
um, what they have the bandwidth to do and how we work together um, to make sure something gets built there. I think that's probably the biggest consequence of, of, of changing direction is that it's going to take a, it's going to take longer to right. get something built there. I don't think it's going to take five years longer. Um, I hope but, not. I, but I've been hoping that we had shovels in the ground out there, you know, late this year, early 2024. Um, and that's, yeah, that's not likely to happen now. Um, 2025 isn't out of the question, uh, but we still have to have conversations with the decision makers uh, about how we, how we, exactly what they want there and how we make that happen. Right. And the decision makers being the town council? The town board, yeah, yeah primarily, board. primarily. And the, and the housing authority board as well. And, right. and uh, again, we're, we're working in lockstep in partnership with them. Uh, the executive director of the housing authority, Scott Moulton, and I joke that we should probably just be sharing an office these days because we're working so much on... Um, planning for future workforce and attainable housing in the well, community. Well, that was my next question. Like, how, how aggressively are you going after this? After what? After the, the workforce housing and the pivot and, like, regrouping and getting a new plan. Very aggressively. Um, there, uh, I mentioned the, the MOU that was recently passed um, that allows us to pass through funds to the housing authority. Yep. As, and they're getting dominoes lined up um they need to to hire additional staff um that are you know development professionals project managers for workforce and attainable housing projects well hopefully um, we have some that live in town already because otherwise they may not have a place to to live they, well yes that's <laughs> i mean that's that's a uh an irony that all employers around here have to have yeah. to live with um and face and we hope to make it easier on them and, you know, and that includes the town. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have absolutely uh, lost prospective recruits um, because of their, the, the difficulty in finding housing here. And we've had difficulty uh, retaining some people who are looking to buy something um, or whose rents continue to go up and there's not a more affordable place for them to go. Right. Uh, we've so seen we're, a major brain drain and just across the spectrum. I think everyone in town knows someone that either lived here or wanted to live here and was looking at, you know, moving their life here that just couldn't because, you know, th yeah. because of the reality of where things sit. That, that's right. And, and, you know, this issue is going to take a long time to address because of, you know, how long it takes to, to, to figure out how to finance something and then build it. Um, but we're, we're moving as aggressively as we can. Um, you know, the housing authorities always got their eye on potential properties that can be purchased to land bank. Um, and even if you sit on those, that's one of the hardest things to get is the property to build, to build housing on. Um, I like to think that the childcare side of things, which is also a major oh, challenge critically for important as well. employers um, and, and employees here will be uh, something that we'll be able to really um, wrap our arms around and get addressed in the in the, in the shorter term um, and we've already we created we've already created um, a, a number of new spaces for infants and toddlers that never existed in the community um, through uh, through the YMCA of the Rockies um, the towns granted them funds to help create uh, the required outdoor space that's got to be separate for the younger kids. Um, we provided them with, uh, with a grant for recruitment and retention bonuses for staff um, that uh, are responsible for the infant and toddler age groups. Um, and they've done an amazing job creating the spaces and, uh, and recruiting and, and retaining the staff um, for those positions in, in, in partnership with the town. Um, right. And uh, there's 10 new spaces for the younger kids that didn't exist before. Um, and that's, that doesn't sound like a ton maybe, but it's huge. And we, we hope to keep that's increasing. Better than where we were. So you absolutely. Know, that's progress. And, uh, oh, two weeks ago now, um, three weeks ago, uh, the town board provided, um, Evix family resource center with a hundred thousand dollar grant, um, 50,000, uh, dollars of that is to be used for direct tuition assistance, scholarships for families. Um, 
who are eligible for that assistance, and fifty thousand, uh, uh, the other fifty thousand dollars is going to be used to uh, create a position focused on tuition navigation for and that's families. That's tuition of daycare for correct workforce. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. It has to be used for child care for people in the local workforce. Yeah, and Evix does some really good things here. You yeah. Know, they've helped my family out. You know, I really believe in their, their mission and what they're doing. Well, and there were questions about, you know, this tuition assistance navigator position and how, you know, how great the need was for that. Um, and I think a, a, a lot of people don't realize how difficult that system is to navigate for a parent. Um, and I've heard lots of stories anecdotally about parents trying to get assistance and, and the system being so complicated that they just give up. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're not, you know, they, they decide that means they can't work. Um, which means there's lower income, uh, which means they're not spending as much in the community and the quality mm-hmm. of life is lower. And sometimes it means they're continuing to work, but they're making other arrangements with their kids that are maybe l- not as, as adequate. Yes, yes. Um, you know, siblings that are probably too young to be looking after the younger ones or, you know, leaving kids at home when they probably shouldn't be left at home. Um, things like that. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, that that position is important because they can help navigate the different levels of funding, you know, that you, you, you the county is the first line and then um, and then this tuition assistance through EVICS is uh, a way that you can supplement um, what you get from the county, uh, it's called CCAP, to help um, pay for uh, child care. So I don't think it's with the, the, the passage of 60, I don't think that affordability for child care should ever be an issue. Um, you know, once we get these programs in place um, and and uh, I, I hope that later this year, um, early 2024, that that we'll have new programs in place to ensure that you know, while housing will still be an issue for sure, it probably always will be that that the dearth of childcare is never going to be a reason why somebody can't move here. Yeah. All right. Well, again, thanks for taking the time to kind of break down some of the stuff that, you know, people like me maybe wouldn't understand as readily from a press release yeah. and just put it into some, some plain language and give us some, some inside golf as to what's happening kind of behind the, the press release. So yeah. I, I definitely appreciate that. Absolutely. Always. always a pleasure talking to you, Jason. All right. Thanks, Jason. Right. Again, that was Jason Damweber, who is the assistant town administrator for the town of Esses Park. Um, so let's let's shift gears here a little bit. Let's um, let, let's. Unfortunately, this is a darker topic, um, and one that's not easy. I mean, unfortunately, the the law enforcement agencies uh, in Northern Colorado have been getting a whole lot of really bad press lately. Loveland PD, I'm looking at you. Um, and it doesn't matter how many Facebook posts you put up of you playing basketball with kids and, and you know, buying ice cream for old people. Like, we know. How many times has the New York Times alone written about the Loveland Police Department? This particular incident doesn't involve the Loveland Police Department, but it does involve the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. So... There was a um, a press release put out um, with a video summary of a critical incident that occurred on February 18th of 2023. So back back in February, um, and uh, we also have a written statement from our new sheriff Fayen, um, and I'll post links to all this stuff. But I'm just going to go over the statement. Um, so uh yeah after reviewing the investigation conducted by the eighth judicial critical incident response team the district attorney determined the deputy's actions were justified of course i mean yeah the da's full conclusion letter with case details are available and i will put the link up to that as well Um, but here's a statement from the sheriff that was put out yesterday we train our deputies to keep the community safe and taking by taking decisive action with information they have available in the moment. However, this profession doesn't have 
the comfortable luxury of hindsight, and the tough reality is that unintended consequences can occur. On February 18th at 9.15 p.m., deputies stopped a vehicle with expired registration tags. The vehicle was traveling northbound on Interstate 25 and pulled off at the Mountain Vista exit, um, right over near that trailer park over there. After a brief contact, deputies determined the adult male suspect had provided a fictitious name and asked him to step out of the vehicle. The suspect, identified as Brent Thompson, then ran from deputies towards the interstate. Um, A taser was deployed in an effort to stop him from endangering innocent motorists, which I find ironic because they tased him in the middle of the highway, literally in the middle of a lane. And he, within a second, was struck by a passing vehicle. Sorry, I'll get back to the the press release here. Mr. Thompson was struck by a passing vehicle. Despite life-saving efforts by deputies and EMS personnel, he was pronounced deceased at the hospital. Well, yeah, I mean, you tased him. He went down in the middle of I-25 at night in February when it's cold and icy. I don't know if that was keeping people safe. I think that was actually endangering motorists. Now, I don't know, but just from the camera footage, I would say that uh, he may have made it across otherwise. I don't know if he he may be in in rehab at this point and getting his life back together if the deputy, in all his wisdom, didn't decide to tase him in the middle of the busiest interstate in Colorado at night in front of ongoing traffic, oncoming traffic. Sorry. The 8th Judicial Critical Incident Response Team was activated to investigate. They subjected this innocent incident to the highest level of scrutiny, spent two months dissecting every detail, and presented the district attorney with a lengthy evidence-based report. This included extensive crash reconstruction, taser data analytics, and forced science research. It also provided details about a firearm and drug paraphernalia recovered from Mr. Thompson's vehicle, as well as a coroner's finding and a third-party toxicology report which showed fentanyl and methamphetamine and other illegal narcotics in his system at the time of his death. Now, here's what I want to say, because that's a little bit misleading. He didn't have the firearm on him. He didn't have the paraphernalia on him. He was helping, according to his story, his girlfriend move. He did have a live cat in the car, which kind of suggests to me he was telling the truth. Maybe he didn't give the name and and was nervous getting pulled over by police in northern Colorado. I know that my daughter often has panic attacks due to interactions she's had um, with the the law enforcement of northern Colorado. Um, Yeah, and and just because those, those were in his system doesn't mean he was... Um, inebriated to the point that he couldn't drive. Um, As first responders dedicated to helping others, we grieve the loss of life in any situation. This incident is no exception, and multiple lives have been charged, changed forever. Nobody wanted this outcome. I met with the Thompson family and her representatives. Losing a loved one is heartbreaking, and I'm truly saddened by the loss they're experiencing. Every incident provides an opportunity to reflect and grow as an agency, and this incident is no exception. The deputy was forced to make a choice with no easy answer, act and try to stop the suspect or stand by and passively and simply hope no innocent people got hurt. We will continue to discuss the challenging case and training and internal conversations about dynamic decision-making, safety priorities, and consequences of actions or inaction, which at this point, there's no consequences whatsoever for this deputy as far as I, I see. I also want to draw attention to the silent but destructive player in this and so many other cases, fentanyl. This drug is devastating lives and families every day, and our community must continue the conversation to stop the devastating effects of illicit drugs in Lermer County. So just blame it on the fentanyl. Because, you know, this wasn't a, a young kid, a young adult. Um, you know, how, how many of us have had issues with some sort of substance abuse, whether that's alcohol or or whatever, drugs, when we were younger? I know I got my shit together. This kid didn't have a chance to do that. And yeah, I mean, I sure hope they're training their deputies now that not to tase someone in the middle of oncoming traffic on a huge highway at night. Like, 
I guess that's a takeaway. Um, and, you know, no consequences for the deputy. Free and clear. And fentanyl is the devil. <sighs> he didn't look like he was nodding off. He sure could run when he needed to. I'm going to... I'm going to just post, I will post the links to the the body camera footage that the sheriff's department had, had put out, but that's bookended on the beginning and the end of similar wording, um, basically deflecting instead of saying, no, our guy fucked up. He probably shouldn't have uh, tased a kid in the middle of the highway at night. But, you know, so I, I, I the, the video that I'm going to post, I'm going to post just the body camera footage. Um, from the start of the stop on, and I, I mean, folks, it, it's not like this guy was like swerving and driving, you know, crazy. He he had expired tags, and now he's dead because a deputy decided to tase him in the middle of I twenty five. Um, yeah. All right, that's all I wanted to say about that. The next story I want to talk to, and it's kind of gotten lost a little bit in between, you know, aging politicians in D.C. having strokes in front of the camera. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, Hunter Biden's um, day in court, uh, there was a congressional hearing this week where a UFO whistleblower claimed a massive cover-up and retribution. He also said that he believes the U.S. has recovered alien spacecraft and bodies and kept secrets for nearly a century. The, the witness was David Grush. And um, I'm actually going to be using uh, the, the, the Drive has a um, really good uh, breakdown of this. I'll put a link into this as well. And this is an article that I'm reading off of from Howard Altman. Um, a decorated intelligence official and Air Force veteran turned UFO whistleblower on Wednesday provided the most pointed public testimony ever given to Congress about claims that non-human intelligence has visited Earth and left behind craft, body, and the government has covered it up for nearly a century. David Grush, hold on, excuse me, who served as a now-shuttered Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force testified under oath before a House Oversight Committee's subcommittee that he has evidence there is a cabal of people inside and outside of the government involved in ongoing pro programs dealing with non-human craft and life forms. These beings have visited Earth, he said, and the cover-up has been going on since at least the 1930s. He testified that the U.S. government possesses multiple alien craft and the remains of their crew the government contractors have misappropriated money to fund these ongoing programs and that there have been efforts to silence those who come forward that may have ever that may have been inc even included murder. In addition, Grouch, Grouch said that the U.S. was working to reverse engineer alien technology and that people were hurt in the process of attempting to do so. He said, said he had a list of witnesses, both cooperative and hostile, for future hearings that could be provided provide additional answers through first-hand accounts. He didn't give those in, uh, in open testimony um, because uh, they're, they're, he's, he is facing retribution for whistleblowing. Um, and uh, he, did, he was very aware and conscious of uh, letting out publicly, putting into the public record anything that may be a, a classified uh, national secret. So um, he wanted to do this in the right way. Uh, <clears throat> he also joined the chorus of those who want to see the release of those images, the images and videos taken during the February shootdown of a Chinese spy balloon and other mysterious craft that flew over North America. Um, Grouch had previously raised these issues when he filed a whistleblower complaint with the U.S. intelligence community inspector general about the internal reprisals for his work on this issue. The complaint was deemed credible at the time, and the probe into it is still ongoing. He's also spent nearly a dozen hours in closed-door congressional hearings and made similar allegations to two media outlets, which include News Nation. Um, there was another interview. But Wednesday was the first time that he made those statements in a public 
in public under oath. He uh, limited his statements to what he could divulge publicly without violating laws pertaining to classified information. His statements were what he was cleared to talk about after a Defense Office of Pre-Publication Security Review, but he repeatedly said he would offer more detailed answers to sensitive questions in a closed congressional hearing if those in attendance had the clearances to hear his answers. And I believe they set that up. I mean, listening to the hearing, watching it, um, I think he went right in to do that. Um, Ryan Graves, another witness, testified that UAPs are the most... The, the, the UAPs, which is, again, the new word for UFO. UAP is Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. But... Um, Ryan Graves claimed in his testimony that the most common that are seen, at least in military circles, are dark, dark gray cubes within a clear sphere. Um, a uh, retired Navy commander, David Fravar, who at one point was the um, commander of the the famous it's like black aces i want to say it's like the the famous navy fighter group um he said that the technology we faced was far superior than anything we have um and he still can't explain it um also during the testimony <laughs> Representative Matt Getz, Republican of Florida, essentially outed a UAP incident near Eglin Air Force Base in the Florida Panhandle, offering never before heard details of that encounter. So, Grouch, the original guy we were talking about, was an intelligence officer detailed to the National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO as an Air Force reservist and later served in a similar capacity in the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA, from 2021 till just a few months ago, earlier this year. He was that agency's co-lead in Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, or Aerial Phenomenon. Um, the Transmedium Object Analyst and reported to the UAPTF and eventually to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO, which replaced it. He told the committee that he had become a whistleblower following the concerns concerning reports from multiple esteemed and credentialed current and former military and intelligence community individuals that the U.S. government is operating with secrecy above congressional oversight with regard to UAPs. In his opening statement, Grouse said he based his testimony on information I had been given by individuals with long-standing track record of legitimacy and service to this country, many of whom also shared compelling evidence in the form of photography, official documentation, and classified oral testimony. He added that he had taken every step I can, can to corroborate this evidence over a period of four years and to do my due diligence with the individual sharing it. And it is because of these steps that I believe strongly in the importance of bringing this information before you. In 2019, Grouch testified that the UAPTF director tasked me to identify all special access programs and controlled access programs. We needed to satisfy our congressionally mandated mission. At the time, given his extensive executive level intelligence support duties, Grouch said he was cleared to literally all re relevant compartments and in a position of extreme trust in both my military and civilian capacities. I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program to which I was denied access to those additional read-ons, Grouse said. I made the decision based on the data I collected to report this information to my superiors and multiple inspector generals. And in effect became a whistleblower. As you know, I have suffered retaliation for my decision, but I'm hopeful that my actions will ultimately lead to a positive outcome of increased transparency. Over the course of a hearing that lasted more than two and a half hours, I guess it was more than two hours. Sorry, I said pushing two 
earlier. Grush addressed many inquiries from a bipartisan panel of lawmakers who came together in this exceedingly rare display of unity to learn more about the claims made by Grouch and former Navy pilots Ryan Graves and David Fravor, who each were party to some of the most known UFO incidents in the last 20 years. I'm going to, I'll let you guys read the questions yourself. Like, really, the, the point of this is, we know there's something out there. We don't necessarily know what it is, but we know there's technology out there that is far and beyond anything that we are supposed to have as human beings, either us or any other national interests. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we live in a multiverse. They, they talk about multidimensional or interdimensional craft during the testimony and the hearing. Um, you know, these things have been coming to light more and more. Um, you know, probably someone you know, if not you yourself, have seen something in the sky you can't explain. I've had several incidents. Um, then a couple here in Estes. It took a few years, but uh, me and my daughter Winter saw a uh, what I would determine to be a UAP um, flying on our side deck one night, which was uh, then followed by it looked like a military jet coming overhead um which was getting closer to it but then that that uap thing just took off at just an impossible speed um i think got video of one um it was several now this might be a starlink sighting but i've seen the starlink satellites come across it wasn't in the same area it was actually a much smaller radius to the path it was taken and um it they just didn't seem to move like Starlink when I had seen Starlink before. So um, I will put a, a link up to, I did a, it was either an article or a podcast about my own personal disclosure, talking about two different uh, incidents that I had experienced in Montana. One while working as a first responder on um, an ambulance team outside of Glacier National Park. Um, and another that I, me and my family and, and some other people experienced at a dinner party we had had at our, our place way up in the mountains of Montana. Um, so I'll put a link into that as well. It's something to, interesting to look at. Um, if you haven't checked out, if this is if this is a topic that interests you, go check out The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which is like a, I mean, it's a reality TV show. and I mean, it's either brilliant in that they're using it to really kind of break down some disclosure items in a reality TV format because we're America and that's what's going to, get the job done better than anything else i mean that says a lot um or uh yeah but but the f point is it's like four seasons and it's a really slow burn but man it's like the super bowl of alien stuff um if you if you really dig this stuff and don't want to kind of jump off the deep end into the gaia type stuff um, the secret of Skinwalker Ranch is is something you should definitely check out. I've I've had some friends check it out, and now they're just completely hooked. Um, so yeah, uh, that's it. That's it for the podcast today. Um, just wanted to kind of get back in the saddle. You know, I've been uh, certainly processing, and I'm sure I will be processing the the death of my wife for a long time to come. Um, something like that just doesn't. It's just ongoing. So uh, I don't know how often I'll be doing the podcast. Probably more often than not because I'm doing more and more um, writing, trying to finish up this book. The The title of the book is The Propagandist Daughters. And um, I'm not sure who it'll be out on. Who knows? Maybe I'll then self-publish it. But I've got some, some major publishers that are interested in it, and my agent wants to get it to them as soon as I'm done. So I'm just working furiously every day to to try to just get it done, but, you know, it's, it's a book, it's a novel, it takes time. But I'm hoping I'll have everything done with the manuscript and, like, a second draft edit by by the time the snow flies um, and uh, go from there. But the response so far has been great. If you haven't checked it out, you can uh, go to the Colorado Switchblade, just Google it, and um, it's a free preview. The first five chapters I had included uh, snazzy AI illustration 
of each chapter, which uh, I thought was pretty cool. Um, but that's it. That's the show for today. Um, thanks for uh, sticking by me as my family goes through this uh, this traumatic life event. And um, yeah, I got I got lots of big things on the horizon still. Um, all that is is still ongoing. And uh, yeah, so I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna keep doing the same thing I've been doing for the last many years and and keep writing and keep talking and and just you know live my life all right folks well I hope you enjoyed the uh, podcast today and I will talk to you again soon again this is Jason Mantano if you're listening to the Colorado Switchblade podcast I'll talk with you soon